Open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you're new or you haven't been here in a while or you're joining us on live stream for the first time, we're in a year-long study of the Old Testament that we're calling relevant. And, and let me reframe the big idea. The big idea is we believe the Old Testament matters. In fact, we believe it really matters. Now, um, there are some churches and pastors and Bible teachers, and I, and I get this, who say, you know, we feel like we're ministers of the new covenant. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about a new and a better covenant. So I get that. And they're like, you know, we've got these 27 books of the New Testament. There's a lot of material here. We've got the words of Jesus. And the whole Old Testament was pointing to him, and we just don't have time to go backwards. I, I get all that. I really do. Uh, what I am concerned about is those who are jettisoning the Old Testament because it's uncomfortable. Because of what they might read in Genesis, and they think there's, you know, evolution versus creation creates arguments, or they see God as a man of war, or God's asking Israel uh, to do certain things and, you know, turn the other cheek, Jesus said, but in the Old Testament, it's an eye for an eye. And so why don't we just turn to the God of the New Testament, Jesus, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so every week in our study, I'm trying to give you a little tidbit of why the New Testament matters. And the one today is stellar. And I don't know about your life, but God does this to me, and I don't know how he does it. But everything dovetails for me. Uh, it's not by my planning. So tonight I'm teaching in Matthew chapter 4, which is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus is in the wilderness. Now he's been baptized by John. And uh, he goes in the waters of baptism and heaven opens up and the Holy Spirit falls like a dove. Holy Spirit's not a dove. That's a symbol of Calvary, by the way. Uh, like a dove. And the Spirit... Um, the Father in heaven says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The same Spirit then drives Jesus into the wilderness. And 40 days, he's tempted of Satan. The, only the third time in Scripture we hear the voice of Satan, who says, if you're the Son of God, or since you're the Son of God, and, and you see the connection there? You know, the Father says, this is my Son. Now Satan's saying, oh, you're the Son of God? Then why are you hungry? Mark says he was hungry. He was all of God, all of man. Why are you hungry? God's son shouldn't be hungry. Turn this wilderness into a bakery. Make yourself a cheesesteak, a hoagie, cordon bleu, whatever you want. I mean, you're the son of God. Then he takes him up on the pinnacle, the highest place of the temple, and he says, well, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan quotes scripture. That's interesting. Uh, Psalm 91, he says, the angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot upon a stone. Nothing can happen to God's people, certainly not Jesus, right? And then the last one, I don't know how Satan did this, but he showed Jesus the kingdoms of this world in a snapshot. And he said, all these are mine to give. That was a half-truth. And uh, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give this all to you. In other words, if you'll bypass the cross, you can have the kingdoms of the world. Now, I love what Jesus does here. Jesus does what you and I can do. He doesn't defeat Satan as God, doesn't zap him, doesn't get out the spiritual warfare manual, right? But he quotes the word of God. He defeats him not as God, but like you and me, as a man. And he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God or put him to the test. And finally, away from me, Satan, you shall worship the Lord 
your God and only him shall you serve. Now Jesus had 39 books of the Old Testament to quote from. He quotes from one book. Answers on Sunday morning are very simple. What book do you think he quoted from? Yeah, the book of Deuteronomy. You think the Deut- book of Deuteronomy matters? You think we might, should read the book of Deuteronomy? You think there's something in the book of Deuteronomy that might minister to us? I say this every week. The Old Testament was the Bible Jesus knew, loved, read, and listen, obeyed. Yes, he obeyed God's word. Uh, When the scripture writers, Paul, inspired, says, all scripture is inspired of God, it's profitable for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be complete. That was the Old Testament when Paul was writing it. Certainly he knew the New Testament was coming, but he was speaking of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament matters, and today we're going to finish the five books of Moses, the Torah. Uh, We're not on a jet tour, but we are on the express. Uh, We'll make one stop in Deuteronomy. It's here in in, uh, chapter 6. And we come to this place where Moses is giving the law a second time. Now think about it, he's 120 years old. Uh, He's about to die. He will not make it into the promised land. He can see it afar off. The word Deuteronomy means second law. In other words, this is the second time Moses has to do this. Why? Because the first generation have all died in the wilderness. Remember, these are the people wearing size 14 baby booties, right? Their their sneakers didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out, right? They've grown up now. And so when you read Deuteronomy, you'll see the Ten Commandments. You'll see Levitical laws. And they're they're repeated. Moses, 40 years, prince of Egypt, like royalty, servants at his beck and call. 40 years, backside of the desert degree, smelly sheep. Then he sees in a little window the mighty power of God, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. And then 40 years with grumblers and complainers in the wilderness. Uh, Anybody want to be a leader? Yeah, that's what you're signing up for, right? Everybody wants to be a leader. I want to be a leader. Okay, this is what you're signing up for. This is Moses' farewell address. This is a man who's walked with God from the burning bush to the man in the wilderness to seeing the promised land. I like to hear final thoughts from a man like this. One of the wisest men, wisest leaders ever to live, Moses is giving his farewell address. And the first thing he's going to talk about is the supremacy of love. Think about this. For all that Moses has seen, all the miracles, all the the wonderful things God has done, Moses is going to say on his deathbed, guys, it's all about love. This is what it's all about when you serve God. And this is the verse I want to draw your attention to. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And what's it go on to say? You shall serve the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your might, with everything in your being, you shall serve God. Uh, Guys, this is a game changer for me. Uh, When I found out that you could love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, oh my gosh. I was a baby Christian, walked the aisle at 21 years old, tears streaming down my face. Uh, When the day was over, I was in the back of the church, and they had a book table. And I had that, like a penny drop moment where I thought, oh my gosh, yeah, this is what I always thought. If God was real, you could know him. And, and you could know him on a simple level, and then God would have to be deep, right? I had this amazing curiosity 
the curiosity of a little child stayed with me all through life. And it was a game changer when I found out you can love God with your mind. Isn't that amazing? You think of some of the greats, Thomas Aquinas and um, all the great thinkers, John Lennox and, and Hugh Ross and all these great thinkers through the century, Pascal, who could love God with their mind. In other words, they could be intellectually challenged. It's such a beautiful thing. Then you can love God with all your heart. Now, sometimes I'm mischaracterized. People say, well, Pastor Bob's intellectual. Well, I'm really a mystic at heart, really. Like, really, at the end of the day, like, my thoughts towards God really aren't as intellectual as you think. We can love God with all our heart. We can get as charismatic as we want, as undignified as we want. And how about our hands? Isn't that amazing? We don't have to give away at work the working of our hands. We can work for God. And we've taken contractors all over the world building hospitals and children's church. Moses said, look, loving God is the key to life. Now, here's where I get interested. The Jews prided themselves on the law. These five books you're reading are called the law, Moses, right? Uh, the resurrection for Christians is what our faith hinges on. Their faith hinged on the law. This is what they exported to the world. This is how they changed the way everyone thinks and feels. But guess what I discovered in Deuteronomy? The word law appears 24 times. The word love appears 24 times. You see, love and law have always gone together. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, for all you parents out there, if you shower your child with love and have no law, you will raise an entitled, selfish child. If you raise a child with all love and no love, that will be a brutal childhood and you'll probably have no relationship at the end. God, who is a perfect father, is full of, listen to this, grace and truth. Jesus was lion and lamb. These were beautiful things. And Moses says, if I can sum one thing up, if you can listen up, and that's what the word Hebrew word, listen, shema, listen up, guys, this is it. You're going into a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going into a land where God's going to go before you. You're going into a hostile world of polygamy and polytheism. Listen up. Love thy Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and all my might. The Jews have been reciting this prayer called the Shema for 3,500 years. Every morning, every evening, they put their hands over their eyes. On their deathbed, they recite this prayer. Jesus recited it every day, so the disciples, so do Jews around the world. 3,500 years. In, a, in October, Lord willing, if a lot of this nonsense passes, we'll be on our way to Israel. We have about 100 people going with us this time. And uh, when these travelers get to Israel, if it's their first time, they'll get to their hotel room, and uh, to the side of every door, they're going to see this little plastic or metal case called a mezuzah. And it looks strange. It's on every single hotel door, on the lintel of the door. And inside it is a little parchment, and in that parchment is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Now, why would they do that? Look in your Bibles at verse 6. After Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, he said, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, right? 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You all doing that with your children? It's getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You'll see Orthodox Jews wrapping you know, the leather ropes around their hand. The frontlets between your eyes, the Pharisees had those little boxes, the phylactery. And you shall write them on your doorposts, that's why there's a mezuzah, of your house and on your gates. God said this was so important that every day you'd have to talk about this. Every single day, because the land you're going is hostile. Now, the last time I checked, when we leave this property, we live in a pretty hostile environment. Every billboard, every TV show, everything you and I see is anti what you and I believe. And, and notice what it says here. These things shall be in your heart. It doesn't mean, you know, that, that you can go look them up. This is why many Jews, you know, orally could, you know, memorize entire books of the Bible. It had to go into the heart, and it had to go deep. Now, you guys up for learning a little Hebrew? Yeah, now I told you, son, these are easy, right? So this is Hebrews for dummies, right? So these books came out 20 years ago. I'm probably dating myself. Sailing for dummies, wine for dummies, uh, golf for dummies. They even have sex for dummies. I didn't think anybody was that stupid. Um, but uh, I have Bible for dummies, and you're saying, Pastor Bob, I've been in your office. You have thousands of books, deep commentaries. Like, why would you have the Bible for dummies? Here's why. Bible teachers make a great mistake. Who do you think writes Bible for dummies? They get like 12 PhDs who all been through semi seminary who can take complex things and make them simple. That's genius. So why wouldn't I read Bible for dummies? Why wouldn't you? So I picked up Hebrew for dummies. And I want to walk you through the Shema. Shema Yah Israel Adonai Elohino Adonai Echad. Now this is so holy I thought we would do it together. So I'll say it and then you repeat. Ready? Shema. Shema. Adonai. Eloheinu. Adonai. Echad. Good job. You got to hock it up. Right? Echad. Right? So let's start with Shema. Like my little toy? The word Shema means to hear, but it means something more than that. It doesn't mean listening to beautiful music. It doesn't mean you're hearing the, the train go by. It means to hear beyond the physical senses. Beyond that, it means to hear and obey. It, it means listen up. So when I used to coach, and we had a timeout, I'm like, everybody listen up. What that means is I'm talking, nobody else talks. We've got one minute in this timeout. I know what we're gonna do, listen up. And what it means is not only listen, this is what you're going to do. That's what Shema means. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. When you become a Christian, you get this other sense, which is to hear the voice of God. This is why you hear old Christians say, oh, God told me to go to this school, or God told me to take this job, or move here or there. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is speaking to the churches, and he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. 
Now, everybody has an ear, but not everybody can hear what the Spirit says. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, some of you will hear my words, and you're going to hear them and not do them, and you're going to build your house on sand. Others are going to hear, they're going to shema, and they're going to do it, and it's going to be like building a house on a sure foundation. And when the storms come, that house will stand. What did God want Israel to hear? C.H. McIntosh said he wanted them to hear the unity of the Godhead, that this was the foundation of the Jewish economy. As long as they maintained this, they were a happy, prosperous, fruitful people. But when it was let go, all was gone. It was their great national bulwark and which was to mark them off different from all the nations of the earth. They were called to confess this glorious truth in the face of an idolatrous world with its God's many and Lord's many. It was Israel's high privilege and holy responsibility to bear a steady witness to the truth contained in that one weighty sentence, the Lord our God is one Lord. In marked opposition to the false gods innumerable of the heathen around. Their father Abraham had been called out of this very midst of heathen idolatry to be a witness to the one true and living God, to trust him, to walk with him, to lean on him, to obey him, and I would use the word to be all in. God knew the land they were going to had fortified cities and giants and ideology and the things that were opposed to their fruitfulness, but God said, I would be with you. And guys, it's the same for you and me. Not only are we, talk, we are called to be in the world, we're called to be salt, we're called to be light, we're called to be a city on a hill. And to do that, we've got to walk in the things of God. Now, as Christians, this gets real, real interesting. Shema, hear, O Israel. Adonai. This is used twice, right? Adonai in Hebrew is YHVH with no vowels. So if you're in Israel and a Jew has to read this, they'll pause and they'll skip it. It's the unspeakable, unknowable name of God. Nobody knows how to pronounce it. So what we have done is we've inserted vowels like Yahweh or Adonai, generic vowels, so we can at least pronounce it. But it's the word Lord. Your Bible should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's always the Lord. Now, the Lord, our God, the Lord is a God. He's one. Now, this is where it gets fascinating. When God, when God said to Moses, I am I, that I am, he was Jehovah. When Jesus said, I am the door, he was Jehovah, Right? But the Lord, Elohenu, the Lord, is a cot. Now, follow me on this. El is the generic name of God. So the Baals that were worshipped, they were El. Uh, that was singular, right? The singular gods. Elohim is plural. Pastor Bob, you're losing me. Uh, well, think of this. Uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim, gods, created the heavens and the earth. And you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's, that sounds like multiple gods. Well, that makes more sense in verse 26 where God said, let us make man in our image. Or when the Tower of Babel was built, God said, let us go down and confuse their language. Psalm 2. So a hint of a trinity here. 
Our God, Jehovah, the Lord, is a cod. He's one. Uh, this is a Jew, not a Christian. Simon ben Joka said, come and see the mystery of the Elohim. There are three degrees, and each degree is by itself alone, and yet all are one and joined in one and not divided from the other. How can that be? I have no idea. How can two be one? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined his wife, and they'll become Echad, one. I, I have no idea. How, how is the church Echad? I don't know. See, this is the great mystery. But we see it fulfilled in Jesus' baptism where the Father is saying, this is my Son whom I want well pleased. The Spirit is falling and the Son's in the water. And there is no explanation. If you've heard of the egg or water boiling and freezing, none of that works because there always has to be the oneness, the akkad. In other words, we're one. Like my staff could be one. We're in unison is the idea. Or the, the Phillies are akkad. They're, they're one. They're 25 men, but they're one. Now, Here's where love comes back into the picture. Jesus, in John chapter 17, prays what we call his high priestly prayer. He prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for you and me. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that all may be one, echad, as you, Father in me and I in you, may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be echad, one, just as we are one. I in them, you and me, that we may be perfect and one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and watch this, have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire they also who you gave me be with me where I am. They might behold my glory that you gave me and you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have declared to them your name and will declare it. Here's what he's declaring, that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. It's always been about love. It's always been about love. Before you and I ever came along, before this world ever existed, the Godhead existed in perfect oneness, echad, and in perfect love. That's the essence of love. Every part of the Godhead serving one another, every part of the Godhead loving one another. And then God said, let us bestow this upon man. And Moses somehow understands this. And to Moses, it's all about love. Then Moses talks about the supremacy of life. This is big. This is really big. Forty years Prince of Egypt, he had everything at his fingertips. Wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. There had to be something more than the gods of Egypt. And Moses Turns aside, he sees a burning bush. God takes him on a journey. And if you could interview Moses, he'd say, this is life. Yeah, I've been through the wilderness and I've been on the backside of the desert, but I'd rather be in this life than anything I had planned than being waited on 24-7 in Egypt. Now, here's the interesting thing about life. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, Moses says, This is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, keep all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, Shema, hear, O Israel, be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 10, so it shall be when the Lord God brings you into the land, and you have houses full of good things, that you did not fill and you did not hewn out, wells that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you have eaten to your full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt. Chapter 11, he says the same thing. Chapter 27 and 28, he puts blessings and cursings before them. Basically, God says, here's my plan for your life. Blessing, prolonged life, abundance, milk and honey. But the choice is yours. You could choose life, which God recommends, by walking in his statutes, or you can choose to be cursed. You make the choice. C.S. Lewis said this about the nature of sin and choice. He said, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and to those whom God will say, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, Lewis said, choose it. All who are in hell, choose it. God has made us in his image. God has made us in such a way that we are free moral agents. Again, Adam and Eve, abundance. And one restriction, love demands a choice. But over and over again, God says choose life. Uh, when I go to the Jewish quarter in Israel, there's a guy who has a little map shop, bookshop, uh, Orthodox Jew, not a believer in Jesus, but we talk about Jesus for hours. And he loves the book of John. And I know why he loves the book of John, because John caught on to the Shema, John caught on to what Moses was writing about when he said G Jesus was full of grace and truth. Uh, he's a disciple whom Jesus loved, right? John, John got this, you know, the penny dropped for John. John records, he's the only one who records this. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. It's John who says, you know what? If I wrote all the things Jesus did, I could fill libraries of the world, but these are written that you might believe Jesus is the son of God and by believing you would have what? Life in his name. This is eternal life, Jesus said. Only John records this, that you might know me and the Son of Man, who the Father has sent, and by knowing me, you would have eternal life. You would have the God kind of life. Most of you know who Jonathan Edwards is. Uh, many will say that he has the most famous sermon ever preached, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, which is, by the way, not as bad as it sounds. Uh, very generous man, loved his wife, uh, very gregarious. Most people don't realize uh, that he was a child prodigy, went to Yale at 12 years old, died as the president of Princeton, and uh, really is credited with starting the Great Awakening. And Edwards came to a point in his life, somewhere in midlife, where he consecrated himself to God in a way he never had. 
And this is what he said. He said, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God. He's already a believer. And wrote it down. It's a great idea. Giving up myself and all that I had to God. This guy had already done amazing things. To be for the future in no respect my own. To act as one that had no right to himself in any respect. And solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and felicity looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were. Uh, he wrote down 70 goals that he looked at every day. This, this is an amazing man. He went on to live a generous life and had tremendous fruit, but really never saw all the fruit of his labor. The fruit of his labor was the Great Awakening, his progeny, which included more than 300 ministers and missionaries, 120 university professors, 60 authors, 30 judges, 14 college presidents, three members of Congress, and a vice president. You think that's a life well lived? You think that's an abundant life? Do you think he was salt? Do you think he was light? This is life, Moses said. This is life in all its fullness. And then, finally, the supremacy of Jesus. Did Moses know anything about Jesus? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. He had what I would call a glimpse. There are over 300 prophecies of a Messiah that would come to Israel. You know what most of them are, right? Born of a virgin, Isaiah said. Born in Bethlehem, Micah. Crucified between thieves, 30 pieces of silver. We go on and on and on. Jesus fulfilled all of them. If he had only fulfilled the 20 most prevalent, it still would be like 10 to the 32nd power. It's totally impossible. But there's, there's a couple that are overlooked, right? Genesis 3, I'll put enmity between the woman, her seed, your seed. You know, we overlooked that one. This one's overlooked. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see the great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, he, he'll be a Jew, and I will put my words in his mouth. Jesus said, only the things the Father says do I say. And he shall speak to them all that I command them, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And you might say, well, Pastor Bob, the, the prophets came along. Um, maybe it was one of them. Nope. How do I know? Because there was a Passover one coming one day. And uh, Jesus is teaching. This is John chapter 6. And he's busy teaching and he doesn't want to send the people home. And he goes to the disciples and he says, hey guys, we need to feed everybody. This is like on the job training. Philip says, um, my gosh, 200 denarii, and that's a fortune. Couldn't just give these people bread. Andrew comes up with an out-of-box idea. 
I just saw a kid with a box lunch, two loaves and, I mean, two fish and five loaves. Jesus is like, all right, you guys are good at crowd control. Just get crowd control. We'll work this out. And he feeds 5,000, not counting men, women and children. Now, you don't think this way because you're Western. Everybody sitting on the lawn that day is thinking of what, about what book of the Bible? The book of Numbers. Because in the wilderness, they had nothing to eat, and God gave them what? Manna, bread from heaven. And now there's somebody giving them bread. And the last verse of John chapter 6 says, Surely or truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. John the Baptist, presiding over one of the great revivals in history. Jews are coming out to be baptized. Jews don't get baptized. They're getting baptized. A delegation comes from Jerusalem. They say, are you Elijah? Now, that's because he was wearing a belt and eating locusts and weird, right? Are you the prophet? That's Moses. Uh, I won't do the heavy lifting for you. You can do it yourself. There's 30 parallels to the life of Moses and the life of Jesus. But here's where the rubber meets the road. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was necessary to instruct us on what was right and wrong. The reason you and I are sitting here today is because of Jesus Christ. He was full of grace and truth. What does that mean? John knew what it meant. The disciple whom Jesus loved knew what it meant. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, we all said this in Sunday school, right? In fact, I'm going I'm to read it exact instead of trying to quote it for you. One of my favorite verses, it could be your life verse. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we should love one another. See, that's where the rubber met the road. Israel failed. God said, choose life. They didn't. They were scattered around the world. God says to me and you, choose life. We don't. And God has to work those things out in our life. But it's through grace and truth that you and I exist. That we have fallen on our knees to a Savior who understands our weaknesses and the things we go through. The message of John the Baptist and Jesus was repent for the kingdom of God is here. The word repent doesn't mean to sit in sackcloth and ashes and weep all day. It can mean that. It simply means to change your mind, to go another way. You don't have to get all emotional. It means to pick up and do it differently. Zacchaeus, chief tax collector. Oh, now I'm going to give you know, money back and I'm going to restore everything I've stolen. That is repentance. Anybody can wail and scream and be emotional. I've shared this story so many times, you guys are getting sick of it, but I'm going to add something to it. I preached to my sister for 30 years. To make a long story short, she came to Israel, became a believer. Five years later, 
still walking with God, amazing. She was here at Easter, just praising God. Lives in Connecticut. We were sitting having lunch, and uh, we were talking about certain social issues, and abortion came up. And she said, I had to sit down with my daughter and tell her, daughter's 22, I believe abortion is wrong. To which her daughter said, Mom, you raised me that a woman has a right to choose. You know what my sister's answer was? She looked her daughter in the eye and said, I was wrong. I was wrong. That's the fruit of repentance. That's to change and go another direction. And that's all because the love of God broke through. And now she understands what life's all about and how precious life is. And now she loves the Lord her God with all her soul, with all her strength, and with all her might. That's to love God and to enjoy him forever.